Happy Sabbath for those of you that have just joined us now. Um, it's been a good Sabbath so far, amen? Really good stories, how God is um, for His people. I love that last song because that's essentially what, um, what the whole story is about. The whole Bible story condensed in a few words that God is for us. And um, whether you, how much you know or how little you know about theology, that's what it comes down to, that God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us, Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 8. And so we've had so many powerful stories of how God uses prayer or how we can come to God through prayer and how God hears us and ministers to us. Um, so it's been really good. And sometimes it's good, good stories, sometimes it's bad stories, but we know that at the end, um, that even if it's, it seems like a bad story, it's not the end necessarily. And we experienced it this week. My uh, family and I, we, my, my aunt died this week, yesterday. And we've been praying. She was in hospital for 25 days, just went in. She had an ulcer and just progressively, there was just complications, complications, had five operations. And we've been praying the whole time. And um, unfortunately, she didn't make it. Youngest sibling of all my mom's siblings. Um, and so it was a very big shock. And I think the worst was is that my cousin lives in New Zealand and he went all the way to South Africa to go you know, spend some time with his family. And uh, it was so expensive to change the ticket. And he flew back and literally the day that he left is the day that his mom passed away. Um, and it, you know, reflecting yesterday on death um, and even now reflecting on the good news that we've heard, sometimes life comes with the bitter and the sweet. And um, reflecting on death is such a, such a difficult concept to realize and to kind of make sense of, isn't it? Like sometimes when you think about that person, it's just not there anymore. Um, makes this story that we're going through so much more important. Because there's many people that go through this situation where they lose people to death and they have no hope. But Paul says that we can grieve, we can cry, we can you know, mourn our loved ones that have passed, but we do not do it without any hope. And the hope that we have is rooted in the first page of the Bible. Um, and that's what we're going to discuss today. So if you've joined us, um, we, we have been going through this uh, series for a while or actually from, since last week, but it's not a new story to many of us, called The Long Story Short. Now, some said I should call it the short story long because I preach so long. So uh, I don't want to disappoint you, but today's not going to be short either. <laughs> so get comfy. Um, so yes, this is part of our biggest series called The Adventist Collective. It's a, it's a series where we, um, we're moving towards um, understanding Adventism, not, not just in a vacuum, but within the biggest story of Christianity. But what are the unique things that we as Adventists come to the Scripture that we believe is verit veritable Christian truth? And so it's part of this bigger Adventist collective that we'll be going through for the, for the next year or so. And uh, the first one is the long story short, getting the big view of the Bible. What is the Bible truly about? And so last week we started with Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and, and this week we had a podcast, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment. But one of the questions that Berenice, who is one of the, the individuals that's on the podcast, asked me is like, this is a very odd place to start with a story about the Bible, and you start almost in the middle after Jesus. Like, it's an odd story to start. But the reason is, is because Paul knew and the, the writers of Scriptures knew that our worldview is embedded in story. And so when Paul was connecting to people that don't share his worldview, share a different worldview, worship a pagan God that cannot do anything for them, he said, I need to tell them a story to shift their worldview to ultimate reality, to what is truly true. And he does that through story. And the reason that I started there is to 
kind of get us geared towards thinking of worldview, that stuff that is the stuff that we never really talk about, but a, a view that we all have, the way that we interpret reality through story and see how even Paul, when he was ministering to people, did that. And so that's what we, we went to last week. And uh, like I said, we started a podcast this week. So if you want to, to join, this is be a weekly podcast that we just discuss the content of the sermon in a deeper way. Um, so it was really fun to record. It was myself, Eddie, Berenice, and Robbie. Um, and we'll be for the next while, while we're busy with the series, every week there will be a podcast that will continue the, the, the conversation about how do we apply this teaching in our lives. The, the whole Christian uh, um, Adventist collective is not to just preach more to you so that you can go home and say, I heard a good sermon, but to teach you so that you can teach others, to equip you. Um, so if you want to join us on that, the, the podcast is, the, the first one is live. So today we're going to start um, looking at creation story. Uh, so before we start, let's just close our eyes for a prayer. Gracious Father, we come to you now, Lord, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us. That the same spirit, Lord, that was there at creation, the same spirit that inspired um, the authors of Scripture to write, Lord, the same spirit that resurrected Jesus, the same spirit that is now with us, the spirit of truth, we pray that that spirit would lead and guide us in, in what we do, Lord. And so I pray that um, we would understand your word and that we would see what it wants to show us, the love and the grace and the goodness of who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I hope that everybody has a handout. If you don't have a handout, just raise your hand um, so that the deacons can come. These are very helpful if you want to take some notes. Um, so like I said, we're in our story of the long story short, and we're going to start with creation. And creation is one of the most fundamental elements to the scriptures, to the scriptures and to the uh, meta-narrative. It is the foundation or axiomatic um, element that almost nothing of scripture makes sense if you don't understand creation. Everything kind of comes from that. And to understand creation and understand the big meta-narrative meta of Scripture, we really have to understand story first. And so here's a very brief um, view. Now, there's a lot of elements that comes to the, but this is the brief view of the story of the Bible. We have creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Then we have crisis, Genesis chapter 3. Then we have covenant, which is basically the rest of the Old Testament in various ways. Then Jesus comes, who is the fulfillment of the covenant. And then the church kind of comes out of that. That's God's people. And then Jesus comes again. There's the second coming. And then there's the conclusion or the consummation to this story on earth. And then we basically start the new story. So that's the long story short. And it follows a very similar plot line that they would say if you study anything about narratives. And a, and a plot line is pretty easy. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? No rocket science there. Beginning, middle, and end. And it starts off with an exposition, um, exposition or an uh, initial situation. It kind of lays the, the land for us, tells us who's the main characters, characters tells us what, uh, what, what the story is going to be about. Then there's a conflict. Conflict is where the, where the situation changes a little bit. It changes the, upsets the story. Then there's kind of a rising action to eventually to a point of climax. And the point of climax is specifically the transforming action, the thing that removes the, the conflict or tries to change the conflict. And then that kind of moves down to the falling action and eventually to the resolution. And so when we think of where we are today in the creation part, think of this as setting the scene and getting everything ready. And we're going to spend some time in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 today. Genesis chapter 3 is where the conflict starts. But Genesis 1 and 2 orients us for what comes at the end as well. 
because the Bible story goes from creation to creation restored. From Eden, what God anticipated Eden to be, right? The potential, dormant potential that he puts there. And in the end of Revelation, we see it actualized by God. And so we, we figure out a lot of the big questions about where we are heading by looking at where we started. And that's why creation is, is so important for us. And the book of Genesis is the story where this all starts. Now, when we talk about Genesis, um, we think of it differently probably than a Jew would have, or even Jesus or the, Pharisee, the Pharisees and the scribes and the, the, the disciples and all of those individuals. When we think of the book of Genesis, we think of Genesis as one book. But for them, Genesis was part of a collection of books and essentially made up one book for them. It was the story of the Torah, the story of instructions. And so Genesis is basically the introducing of God's people and introduces all the main plot lines of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and so forth. So Genesis is basically the introduction story, lays all the, the major things for us. So Genesis is the introduction of Torah and the seedbed of theological truth. What does that mean? It means that all the theological truths that we see in the rest of Scripture are actually already sown in the book of Genesis. It's a very Hebrew kind of way of, of doing stuff. Sowing the seed and later letting it sprout out and having it see how it develops. So if you want to know all the main things that develops in the book uh, of the rest of the Bible, a lot of it is already found in the book of Genesis. So Genesis is very formative, should be very formative to us as Christians. And Genesis is broken up into two sections. Primeval history, Genesis 1 to 11. That's the, the history of all of humanity. And then it moves specifically from Genesis chapter 12 to the story of Abraham. We call that patriarchal history. So the rest of Genesis from chapter 12 all the way to the end is basically the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And how Jacob and his, his, his 12 sons land up in Egypt. And so the story of Exodus is how God leads them out of Egypt. And so these formative chapters are important for us to understand what Genesis is truly about. We're going to spend the next few weeks, not next week, but the two weeks after that and this sermon, looking at Genesis 1 to 3 and specifically looking at God, humanity, and the world, the three major things that make up our worldview. So today we're just going to speak about God, just kind of get of a concept of what does Genesis 1, 2, and 3 say about God. So we're going to look at that and we're going to compare and contrast God to Satan. So in this big story, in this big narrative, there's God, the main protagonist, the good guy in the story. And then automatically, Satan is the antagonist, the evil one. And we're going to compare and contrast them. And the reason why we're going to compare and contrast them is because when you start putting them together, there are certain elements about God that you appreciate a lot more. Because sometimes we are so domesticated by the gospel, meaning we have heard the story so many times that we know, yeah, 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 God is love. Yeah, yeah, God is powerful. But when you put it in contrast to the evil one, it stands out by itself and you start to realize how good God really is and how powerful God really is and how God's goodness is for you more than what you even imagine. So that's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at those three things. That's all that we're going to do. Look at God and Satan and these three things, the mission, the method, and the motive. Right? The mission, the, the, the method, and the motive. So we start in Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And it starts off with the words, in the beginning, passage that we know very well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a thesis statement. Basically, the rest of Genesis chapter 1 is an explanation of that one verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens 
and the earth. And just from that one verse, from that, in the Hebrew, it's seven, seven words. In the seven first words of the, the first chapter of the Bible, the first page of the Bible, we can already learn quite a lot about God. We know that God is creator. He, is, he, he works in creation, but He is not of creation. He is distinct from His own creation. He is, this is not a pantheistic God that is in the trees and in the water and in the, the sun and in the moon and all of these things. No, 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 no. God creates. He is the creator and He stands distinct from His creation. Secondly, God creates time and space, meaning God creates the universe, the framework in which we operate. We operate in time. We don't have a choice in that. If I keep quiet or if I keep on talking, it doesn't really matter. Time will keep on ticking. And we move within the space, but God, although He creates in it and steps in it and moves within it, He is not bound by that. He's not bound by space and time. Thirdly, that God creates out of nothing. Latin word is ex nihilio. In the, the Hebrew, actually says, in the Hebrew it says, Bereshith in the beginning, bara Elohim. Bara is the word that, that is used there to mean to create out of nothing. Now we are all at some point in our lives have created something. Or maybe we, we built something. Maybe we made a sandcastle. Whatever we have created in our lives, we created from resources that was given to us. The first verse and the first chapter and the first page of the Bible says to us that when God created, He created when there was nothing. He didn't use stuff to create. He used nothing and He spoke it and it stood fast. That is a power that none of us would be even able to ex- understand or explain. How God just speaks and it creates realities and dimensions. How the universe comes forth because God speaks. And then everything in the cosmos is created by God. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Meaning everything above and everything below, everything that there exists is created by this good God. And then it goes on in verse 2 and it says, The earth was, with, was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the earth. There's a play on words there in the Hebrew, Moses playing there. He uses the word tohu vavahu. It's a play on word and it could literally mean the earth was wild and waste. The earth was wild and waste. Or the earth was unordered and uninhabited. Or it could say the earth was disordered and darkness was over the face of the earth. To the Hebrew, it was tohu vavahu struggling to, 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 to have a child because of infertility or because of certain disease, that's tohu vavahu. Having, being, uh, having your marriage fall apart or being uh, abused domestically or sexually or whatever, that's tohu vavahu. Being let go from your job, that's tohu vavahu. Anything that is chaos, anything that is darkness, anything is, that is not from God is tohu vavahu. And so God starts from this place of tohu Vavahu, in a very short sentence, this is what Moses is saying, that the earth was a hot mess. When, when God got there, the earth was a hot mess. Meaning that God can operate with a hot mess. You think your life is a hot mess right now? You think that your life is a tohu vavahu, that there is just waste and darkness and destruction? When you think that there's nothing more for God to do anything, that's where God shines. That's where God operates. That's where the only God, this God, can do something because He is the Creator God. So He steps into this place and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I love these testimonies that we just had here because the Spirit was hovering over that darkness. God was hovering there and He keeps on hovering there. And maybe at this moment you're saying, but yeah, God is hovering over their darkness, but over, not over my darkness. 
I would tell you that the story is not done yet. But here the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the darkness. And then in verse 3 it says, And God said, Let there be light. And I love this. God just speaks, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and, the God, and, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, when we read the story, we probably think, oh, this is a nice story. But Moses is very specific. A Hebrew um, um, kind of paradigm was that it is not just what you say, it's how you say it. So the way that the story is structured is very important to a Hebrew mind because that says just as much as what he is saying. So when you go through these stories, you'll see that there's actually a very strong pattern to these days of creation. There's an introduction, and God said, there's a command, let there be, there's a report, there's an evaluation, and there's a time frame. And then when you go to the next day, day two, and day three, and day four, and day five, and day six, you will see that this, this, uh, this pattern continues. There's an introduction, there's a command, there's a report, there's evaluation, and there's a time frame. It was evening, and it was morning, the first day. It was, it was evening and it was morning the second day and the third day and the fourth day. We get this idea that this God that steps into this hot mess and does something, doesn't just stop, uh, step in willy-nilly and doesn't really know what he's doing. He's just kind of figuring it out as he's going. No, no, no. He knows what he's up to. He knows where he's going. And there is a distinct purpose of what he is doing and how he is doing it. And the purpose is very, very clear. He creates in, in a cycle of six days and rests in the seven, right? And, and, and if you look at this, if you remember the first verse there, it says that uh, uh, the, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the, the, the face of the earth. It was, it was disordered and uninhabited. And now God comes in the first three days, he orders everything. And then you see that he inhabits everything. So on the first day, God creates day and night. He orders the day and night. And then on day four, he, he inhabits that space with the sun, moon, and stars. Then on the, on the second day, he orders the sea and the sky. And then he inhabits that with fish and bird. And then you see on day three and day six, there's almost two days, two, two sets of creation there. He goes again and he orders the land and vegetation and then inhabits that with land creatures and humanity. He forms for three days and he falls for three days. God knows what he is about and he knows what he is doing. And it moves down to this idea that God then finishes in his rest. We read in Genesis chapter two, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. As God is creating on the sixth day, he says that I wanna do something special on this day and he creates humanity. Now we're gonna spend quite a bit of time just looking at what that means. But in this story, it just says, let us make man in our image. There is no creature that we know of in Scripture or in this world that is created in God's image outside of us. Not the angels, not the other creatures. We are created in God's image. And what's interesting about this idea of image is that it would have resonated with the Hebrew mind, with the ancient mind. Because in, in, in Revelation, not in Revelation, in Exodus, when God gives his 10 commandments, interestingly enough, God uses, speaks here 10 times. He uses words 10 times. In, in the giving of his law, he says that nobody should make a graven image. We should not bow down to images. Why is that? Because we already are images of God. And so God comes and he says, I'm gonna create this image. And, the, and that resonated because during that time, what kings would do is they would build images of themselves and put them in their domains to say, this is my territory. God says that by saying, I'm creating you in my image, he is saying, I'm creating a being that will rule for me. 
I'm going to rule through them into this world. There is great privilege given to us as human beings from God, from the get-go. God says, let us make man, make us, let us make humanity in our likeness and let them have dominion. Let them rule over the fish over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, right? So all the domains, whether it is sea, whether it is heaven, whether it is earth, it doesn't matter. God says that you as a human being, now that is not something that was just for Adam and Eve. This is for every person sitting here. That same promise God is still saying to you today, I'm calling you to rule in this world over the sea and the heavens and the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then God blessed them. Can you see what God is doing here? God has purpose. God has design and he's doing something. He comes together and he orders this, this, this chaos. He orders this, this order and comes and brings it together so that man, so that humanity, so that you and I can have the privilege to rule as vice regents on this earth, as God's people. God's goodness was always towards humanity, always there to bless them. God blesses them and said, be fruitful and multiply. What does that mean, be fruitful and multiply? To have children, right? Part of that is to say, have images that's in your image. What is God actually saying? God is saying, I want you to procreate. I want you to be a part of this journey of being a creator because you're created in my image. God is sharing the gift of creation. Yeah? Can, can you see God's heart towards us? He is saying, I want to create a space so that they can know what it means to be created in my image. Who is the ultimate ruler? Is it not God? And God says, I'm giving dominion to the human, to, to the humans. Is God not the ultimate creator, but he gives some form of that to us as well. And he says, have dominion over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here we see another element of God that God shares power and responsibility with humanity. And that humanity is not just male. There's, there's various different nuances and words that are used when it speaks about male and female. The word um, male is and the word female, Isa, is used when it specifically designates male and female. But sometimes when it says man, the word there is Adam, right? And it literally means humanity. It doesn't mean just mean, mean one gender. So the, here God doesn't just come say, you know, just the males, they will dominate and they will rule and that's given to them. No, no, no. In the Genesis account, he's saying that both male and female are called to rule. Both are given dominion, Right? And then it says, God equips humanity to be co-creators and vice rulers. What do you think God thinks of you? Do you think that God still has this sentiment towards you to be a co-ruler with him? To be somebody that should co-rule and co-create with him in this world? Do you think that this story of Genesis has been warped and changed? No, no, it's still the same story. God's, God's goodness and intent in this story hasn't changed. It's the same towards you as it was to Adam and Eve. And so we see in Genesis chapter two and, God, and on the seventh day, God rested and finished his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. So we see this beautiful setup here. There's this kind of horizontal parallel, day one with day four, day two with day five, day three with day six, where there's this movement from, from um, disorder to order, from uninhabited to inhabited, from forming to filling. So there's this beautiful contrast, this beautiful parallel. But what's beautiful about it is there's also a vertical parallel that we see coming out on the Sabbath day. 
It starts off with the, the world being a hot mess without form and void and darkness. And then God finished this and rests in that. Once again, God moves from Tohu Vavahu to the Shabbat, to the rest. God moves from a place of disorder to order. God moves from a place of chaos to cosmos. In a sense, that's the gospel story. If you just had Genesis chapter one, you have the full gospel story because the rest of the story from Genesis chapter three is how God, who took the material disorder and made material order, how to, God took, uh, took a, a, a material chaos and made it material cosmos, how God took material uh, waste and made it rest, how God then takes your spiritual hot mess and makes you rest in His divine rest, in His divine grace. Creation and redemption are so closely linked, you cannot remove them. You cannot have a redeemer that is not the creator. And because he is the creator, he has the power to be the redeemer. So we come here to Genesis and this is the, the main story. It, it is the, the, the axiom that a lot of stuff is built upon. And on the seventh day, God finished his work. Here we see a few things as well. He finished his work, which he had done and rested on the seventh day, which he had done. So we see that God rests in his good work. He doesn't just create all of this as the deist would say and then steps away and walks away and says, I want nothing to do with this. No, no, no. This God who is distinct from creation steps into creation and rests with his people. Is that not anticipating the incarnation? Is not already seeing this God has a heart for his people that he's willing to step in and be with them on that Sabbath day? Let me tell you this, the Sabbath day, the seventh day, that's why we keep the Sabbath days because of this creation text. That the Sabbath is not a holiday. It's not a day where you can just relax and have the day off and just do whatever you want. No, no, no. The Sabbath is a holy day where God steps in there as if there is something special about the Sabbath day where God is with us for every six day. God was there in creation. But on the seventh day, there's something special where He even stops to work to be with you. Have you ever thought about that? Tomorrow, God's back at work. Now, somehow God is still doing stuff. He's still sustaining the world. But there's something that God even ceases from His labor today at this moment to be with us. Do we do the same? Do we spend time and do we prepare for the day when the Sabbath comes that we can say, Lord, we are here. That we wanna spend time with you. We see that God is the sole creator and sustainer. There's nothing else. There's no other external force or inter. There's just God that is the sustainer and the creator. And then God ceases from his work by resting with his creation. That's how he ceases from it. What's interesting about this, this story, when you get to, to Genesis chapter two, you'll start to realize as you read through it that this whole creation, when it comes to the end, has moved from good to very good. And it works around this idea of seven. Now in the Hebrew mind, the number seven meant something. It meant completeness. It meant that it was finished, right? And, and once again, how the story is told is just as important as what is being told. In the first line of Genesis one, this, the, 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 in the Hebrew, there's seven words, Bereshith, bara, Elohim, right? He, he explains it in seven words there, the, the, the creation, the thesis statement. In the second verse, it's two sets of seven, 14 words. Then we see that there are seven days of creation. Then we see that God pronounces that it is good, 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 it is good. It is very good seven times. And then there's a statement about the Sabbath that uses the word, uh, that uses seven statements or seven words in, in three sets. So 21 words. 
So when you would read this in the Hebrew with this kind of Hebrew mindset, you will say that when you come to the end of the Sabbath, God is saying everything that I have created is what? It is perfect and it is good. There is no taint of evil. There's no taint of darkness. There is no taint of anything but goodness that God brings to humanity. There's nothing else that he brings. So God rests in his good work. Now, when we get to Genesis chapter 2, verse, verse 4, where we move to the next story, we see that there's this, there's this verse that links the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 account. It's called a chiastic structure. So these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And at the end, he says earth and heaven. So you can see that there's, there's kind of a parallel there. And he says that the day they were created in the day that the Lord God made. Now, when you're just reading this, this might slip by you and say, oh, okay, the Lord God. But when you pay attention, in Genesis chapter 1, he doesn't use the word Lord God. The word Lord is translated as Yahweh. It's God's personal name. It's the name that God gives Moses when he says, who will I say, who will I say has sent me? And he says, I am who I am. I'm the self-existent one, right? When they say to the Hebrews, who is your God? They will say Yahweh. But the word Elohim is a category for deity. It's just God. So sometimes when they talk about the gods of Baal, they would use the same word Elohim. So in Genesis, when we read and God said and God this and God that, we get in the concept that there is a deity who is the creator, but we don't know who he is personally. We just know that he is good. We just know that he is powerful, but we don't know anything much more than that. But then in Genesis chapter two, we step into the story that be like, whoa, this God is not just powerful, but he is personal. He does not just stand outside of creation and says, let there be light and there was light and let there be seas and there were seas and let there be stars and there were stars. But somehow in Genesis, he steps into the story and he bends down and forms Adam from the dust of the ground and he breathes in the breath of life. He is the God that gets intimate and close to us. So he is not just the God that is powerful, although he is, but he's also a God that is personal. So when we're praying for Barry, we're not just praying to a God out there somewhere hoping he is listening to us. We are praying to her God, to her father that listens to her plea and knows everything about it. When we are praying for Karen, we are praying for her God that she knows. He knows her personally, intimately, knowing every step that she has taken in her life, knowing everything that she has gone through. When you're praying, you are not just praying to a God out there somewhere. You're praying to a God that knows you that knows you so intimately that he knows the hairs on your head. He knows the beats of your heart per minute. He knows every step that you've taken, every thought that you've ever, ever thought. He knows everything about you and he still cares and loves for you. And his goodness is still for you. And so we get into Genesis chapter two. We're not gonna run through this whole section, but you can see something interesting in, the, in, the, in Genesis chapter two. It starts off where creation is incomplete. Once again, think about this thematically. We sometimes come to Genesis 1 and 2 and we want to bring our categories and our questions to this. Just suspend your questions and let the story tell you something. Let the story inform you of what it wants to inform you. Genesis chapter 1 tells us the story of this powerful God that creates and rests in His creation. Genesis chapter 2 tells the story of incompleteness moving to completeness. Right? We start off in, in, in verse one to uh, Genesis chapter two, verse five, it says that there was no vegetation due to the lack of rain or workers. It says nothing had grown in the land. There was no shrub, there was no plant, there was nothing, right? And then suddenly in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, God provides a worker. And then we see that God creates, creates a garden for them to inhabit. And then God provides water. So God gives them all the elements that they need to succeed. He doesn't give them a full garden already done and finished. 
He gives them a part of a garden and starts giving certain things and says, now go and create more, build more. God is giving them a place full of potential, not actualized potential. Does it make sense? So then we see that God places the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. But then suddenly, God realizes that it's not good for man to be alone. It's not that the man realizes, man, God, you messed up. I'm alone here. God says, I know that you need somebody. So once again, you see this personal God realizing the intimate details of his creature. And he says, it's not good that man should be alone. I created him for society. I created him for community. And so then God creates a, a companion for man. And then you see at the end, the married couple there. So we move to this point where God is powerful in Genesis chapter one, moving around, seeing these things, but then he gets so intimate. He's the first one that walks, his, walks Eve down the aisle and he's there to officiate the first wedding and he's there to share in the beautiful, most intimate relationship that they have. God is there, not just as God, but as father, walking with them. But then in Genesis chapter two, we read, and the man and his wife were both naked. They were vulnerable. They were open with each other and they were not ashamed. And then the next verse, just like Genesis 1 and 2 were connected with specific words, Moses connects Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis 3 with each other and he says, now the serpent was more crafty. So he plays on the words of an arom and arum. He says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So he says that this being, it gives us a hint to say that this being, the serpent, is somehow going to capitalize on that. He's going to, to extort that kind of vulnerability of humanity. He's going to attack them. Now, we don't know much about who the Satan character is or the serpent character is. The Bible doesn't tell us much in Genesis chapter 3 or 4 or 5 or 6. It's only very much later that we start to realize who he is. There's a few um, Satan texts in the Bible, Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation chapter 12 are the kind of foundational ones that then lead to Genesis chapter 3 that happens before Genesis chapter 3. And then Job 1, Revelation 12 and Revelation 20. So I just want to spend a few moments looking at these verses. Revelation chapter 12. Now this is the end of the, of the book of, of uh, the New Testament, right? A lot has happened there. The, the people went into Egypt. They came out of Egypt. They went into the promised land. They went, to, they, they went into exile. Jesus came. Jesus resurrected. The church started. This is the last, last thing. So we read here, and now war in heaven. Somehow John is taking us back all the way to the, to the beginning of the narrative. He says, I want you to understand what is happening here. In the book of Revelation, the, the book of Revelation is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book is about Jesus if you get caught up on, on all of the other things, you're missing the point of, of Revelation. It's about Jesus. He says, but in the book Jesus, oh, in the book Jesus, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is the main guy. He's the main protagonist. He is the good guy. He's the one, he is the hero. But there is also an anti-hero. There's also somebody that, or not an anti-hero, a villain. There's, all, there's somebody that's against him, the antagonist. And in, in Revelation, the antagonist is called the dragon. It is the dragon that fights against God's people. It's the dragon that wants to consume and kill Jesus. So it says, now war arose in heaven and Michael, who is Jesus, and his angels fighting against this dragon. So it talks about a controversy, it talks about a war. And the dragon and his angels fought back. So it's like, okay, they, they, they're giving some resistance. But he was defeated and there was no longer place for him in heaven. So somehow this being was in heaven and then he was kicked out of heaven. And then it says, and the great dragon. So we still, we, if you're reading Revelation, you still know who this is because the whole time he's speaking about the dragon, the dragon. And then he says, and the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent. 
This dragon figure in Revelation that we've been talking about, you know what? He's the same person that we saw in Genesis chapter 3. He's the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Those two words are super important. Number one, the devil is somebody that slanders. That's what the word devil means. It comes from diablos, right? The, the one that slings mud. Balos is the Greek word to throw something. Right? So it comes from the, it's a juxtaposition of words that literally means to sling or to throw mud. It's a character assassin, assassin. Right? Somebody that likes to slander. And then the Satan is the accuser, the one that stands against. The Satan doesn't stand for something, he always drags something down. He's always against something, not for something. So it says this dragon being that we know of, he's actually the guy in Genesis chapter 3 that we read of. He, interesting enough, who he is, is that he is the devil. He is the one that likes to sling mud. He is the Satan that likes to accuse. And he, how does he do this? By deceiving the whole world. He deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, if we take that context and we go to Isaiah chapter 14, which speaks to the motive of why he's doing it, uh, Isaiah paints it for us. It says, you said in your heart. Where did he say this? In his heart, in his inmost being. He said this, I will ascend. I will go up to the heavens above the stars of God. I will, set, uh, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly, the place where they worship God, in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the, the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. What is the motivating factor of, of, of the serpent? of Satan, of the deceiver, pride, wanting to move up in the world, right? Now, Ezekiel chapter 28 fills in that a little bit more, right? He goes and he says that this individual, this being was a guarding cherub, right? Which means that he had status, he had proximity to God. When he was created, that's what Ezekiel chapter 28 says, is that he was created. He is not a being that, that is like a God that it was never created. God is the creator, but this being is created, right? But he was an influential being. He was created blameless. So he was not created with defect or problems. But then unrighteousness was found in him and he became Satan. Verse 17 gives it, paints the picture a bit more clear. It says, your heart was proud because of your beauty. That's the reason that he fell because of pride. Because he, was, he thought himself better than everybody else. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Now, there's a verse in this section that for many years, I just didn't understand. It just didn't make any sense to me. Like when you read it, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, you want it to be high and you want it to be lifted up. And you, but there was this verse, verse 16, that says, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. What does that even mean? Right? It took me many years. I tried to figure this out. I tried stuff and nothing. Until I got to this book by Angel Rodriguez, uh, uh, one of the Biblical Research Institute directors. He's retired now, but he wrote a book um, on, on salvation and he, he picked apart this verse. And I want to read to you what he says. He says, the text in Ezekiel chapter 28 says, the text depicts him as a merchant who in the context is trading or spreading or selling a spirit of rebellion. It suggests that others are listening to him. So essentially what he's saying is that this guy is going and he's sharing a specific worldview. He's selling his ideas. People are listening. They're giving him an ear. The root meaning of the term recular, which means trade, 
designates a person who walks about and from there it is applied to the merchant who journeys from place to place to sell his or her goods, a peddler. So Ezekiel says that you were created perfect, you created beautiful, you created all of these things, but because of the pride in you, because you wanted to be like God, because you were jealous of God, because you were envious of God, because you thought you were the bee's knees, you started walking around and spreading some ideas, creating realities with your words. The passage in Ezekiel sees the cherub as an actively involved in, in, in the spread of what he considered to be his goods. The word recular is also related to the noun rakil, which means to slander. So the things that he was spreading was slander, bad news, stuff that isn't true. If we apply the meaning in this context, then the text would be charging that the cherub was slandering the Lord in many ways. That is to say, speaking badly, falsely, and maliciously against him. In doing that, he was filled with violence. I want you to pick this up because this is a very subtle point, but such a powerful one. That this being created beautiful and perfect, corrupted himself and corrupted everybody else by the creation of the words that he was saying, creating realities in their minds that led to violence. God comes in Genesis chapter one and he creates good world with his words. And the devil comes and starts decreating the world that God had created. Start bringing back in the chaos and the destruction through the words that he goes. And he peddles these lies. Then he moves to the violence. He says the Old Testament uses the Hebrew word humas, usually translated violence, primarily in the context of a social and legal interaction. So when we get to Revelation chapter 12, where it says that war broke out in heaven, that was already the tipping point. That was not the beginning. That was the tipping point. It started off as a social and legal interaction. It started off by just speaking, designating an inappropriate way of relating to others that violates their rights. It involves the illegal appropriation of what belongs to God or to one's neighbor. It is motivated by greed and hate and often making use of physical violence and brutality. So the devil was moved by selfishness and pride. He goes about and starts selling lies to people, creating realities in their mind that eventually eventuates into actual violence. Moving to a point where it starts destroying the beautiful world that God had created. Such violence could result in murder. It could be verbal, consisting in the humiliation of the victim through impudent self-aggrandizement, by influencing others to do evil or by falsely accusing somebody. In the case of false accusation, hate is its source. In the abundance of your trade, not in the one or two things that you said, but the in abundance of your trade, going about, sharing, speaking, no, it's just words. I'm just sharing some ideas. I'm just hearing what they're saying. But he's saying, no, 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 no. This great controversy started because this person was sharing falsity, slander. And you were filled with violence and in your midst, you sin. So let's go to the mission. God's mission in this Genesis 1, 2, and 3 account, God's mission is primarily to create a good context for his image bearers. That's you and that's me. God's heart was always to create a good context for humanity to develop and grow in their goodness by ruling and resting in creation. When God created Adam and Eve, they were not perfect. They were not complete. I'm not saying that they were sinners. Don't get me wrong. But we sometimes have the concept that when God created Adam and Eve, He put them in a perfect garden that was already finished. 
and they were already fully developed and there was nothing more to do than just relax. No, 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 no. God created Adam and Eve perfect without sin in a garden that was perfect without sin, but was not complete yet. God said, go and do something. Develop it. Use your skills, use your abilities, use your creativity. Go and procreate and go and create and build something. When we get to Revelation, we see the actualization of that. When the new heavens and the new earth comes down, a great big city. Isn't that what God envisioned in Genesis chapter one? God saw that. He says, I want you two people to procreate and they, they, they will procreate. And so eventually you'll build families and families will become villages and villages will become towns and towns will become cities. Is that not what we see in Revelation? We see that God took this idea and he says, I am so faithful to this idea in Genesis chapter one for to, to have a good context for my creation that even at the end of the story, you'll see that God still comes through for what he intended for humanity. Is that not beautiful? Does that not show how God can use chaos and disorder, even the chaos and the disorder that the devil brought into this world and humanity latched onto and that we uh, uh, propagated as well? That even all the messed stuff that we as humans have done in the thousands of years, it doesn't matter. God will still bring good out of this because of Jesus. And Satan, what is Satan's main mission? Satan's main mission is to exalt himself above all. God's point is to share power, to share, to share and to love and to give, to be other-centered. But no, 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 the devil is to exalt himself, including, um, to exalt himself above all, including God, which results in the decreation of the world back to darkness and disorder. And when you are following him, when you are sharing in the dark works, that's what you are doing. You're working actively against the creator, moving back to a state of decreation. What is the method that he goes about? God goes and he creates goodness and order and rest through his creative word and actions. What does Satan do? What is his method? He creates chaos and disorder and unrest through his slanderous and deceptive words and actions. He is a counter creator. He creates, but he doesn't create anything that is good. He creates chaos for his own benefit that will eventually lead to his own destruction. And then what is the motive? God's motive is selflessness rooted in love. John 3.16, one of the greatest known verses in the, in the Bible. For God what? For God loved the world that he gave. That's God's, that's God's posture towards you. He wants to give goodness to you. He wants to give love to you. What is the, what is the devil's uh, 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 motive? He's selfish, he is selfish and it is rooted in his pride. He doesn't care about you or anybody else. He just cares about himself. He will use you 100%. He will even sometimes manipulate you so that you think that his way is the best way. And it's for me. I'm going to be exalted. No, 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 no. Everything that the devil is telling you to do, all the deceptions and the lies, everything that he is trying to navigate you is not for your benefit, but for your downfall. There is nothing good that can come from the father of lies and the deceptive humanity. Nothing but there is only good that can come from God. So truthful today, what can we learn from this? Is that God directed by his character of selfless love is and always has been seeking nothing but the best for you. From the first page of the Bible, from the first verse in the Bible, God has always had a posture of love and grace and goodness and mercy and beauty towards you. And that has never wavered, has never changed, and it will never change. God says, I am the, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
No matter what kind of uh, uh, stuff comes my way, no matter what kind of uh, chaos happens, I am the God that can create out of nothing. I am the God that can move from chaos to cosmos, from disorder to order. I am the God that can move from Tahu Vavahu to Shabbat, to rest. But Satan, on the other hand, he is the deceiver directed by his character of selfish love has always been seeking nothing but the best for himself. And so all the trappings, all the deceptions, all the things in the world that leads us away from God and who God truly is and his ways essentially is for our destruction and our downfall. It might come up wrapped up beautifully in a nice bow and it might deceive our our eyes and our hearts and our desires and all of these things, but at the end there is nothing but vapid meaninglessness. And so Genesis chapter one and chapter two lays the foundation of the story and it helps us understand everything else. So there might be stories in the Bible where you're like, but this doesn't sound like a God that his goodness is towards humanity. This is a story that doesn't sound that God is loving towards humanity. This seems like a vengeful God, an angry God. Somehow those stories need to be reinterpreted and understood in the light of Genesis one and Genesis two. That God is for us that it is for you and that will never change. That the story and the God that we meet in Genesis chapter one is the same God. It's a God that comes to us in our, in our deepest desires and our darkest needs. A God that listens to our prayers. A God that is powerful, that can do stuff and it's personal to listen and understand. Genesis chapter one sets the foundation so that when we go on, every time that we interact with this God, we come from a place knowing that he is a good God. And so everything that you think you know about God, everything, all the conceptions and ideas and all of these things that you think you know about God, the Bible is saying, put all of those away and start building from this foundation is God love. Because the world and everything else will tell you that he is not. But start from that premise, build your theology from that. Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, wrote uh, various books, many, 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 many books, right? A hundred thousand pages worth of stuff that you can read about what she wrote. But one of the, probably the most profound and probably succinct commentaries on the big story of the Bible, right? Story of redemption, starts in patriots and prophets and goes all the way, right? If you read her story, if you read her whole um, commentary on the big narrative, she starts off with the phrase, God is love. And she ends at the end with the words, God is love. That's the God that we meet in Genesis chapter one. And it's the God that we meet at the end of Revelation. And it will be the God that we will know for the rest of eternity. A God that loves you more than anything else in the world. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you and we say thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for Genesis one and Genesis two, Lord, where we can just look at the beauty and the intricacy and the um, poetic uh, um, beauty that, that is in there, showing us, Lord, how much you love us and how much you care for us. And Lord, we know that there is an evil one about that wants to uh, subvert and, and, and twist our ideas about who you are. But Lord, he is just for himself. And you are for us. Lord, you're a God that is motivated by your character of love. And some of us are basking in that love. Some of us are enjoying it and we are celebrating that beautiful love. And some of us might be struggling because we hear it, but we don't see it. I pray, Lord, that we would not only hear it from Scripture, but that we would experience it in our lives as your Holy Spirit moves and guides us, Lord, as 
We are a community of love as we are a community of your people, Lord, that we would truly see this, that there won't be a taint of the spirit of the serpent in our midst, that we would create beauty with our words and our actions, that we would go about, Lord, loving you and loving our neighbors because we are your people and you are a God of love. Bless and keep us now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.